Welcome to The Red Gaze, a podcast where we critique Native-themed films based on our perspective as a Native audience, a program where we discuss what films get right, what they get wrong, and how we apply The Red Gaze to what could have been. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to The Red Gaze. Hopefully, you're faithfully listening to our pod now. Eh? Today, although today we are taking on a very serious subject and taking on the film Wind River. I'm your host, Cheryl Carey of the Sacred Pipe Resource Center, and I am here with two good colas. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm here with Ruth Buffalo. Hi, Dosha. Thank you for having me. And Billy Joe Behealer. Hello. Thank you for having me as well. I got two awesome lady activists in the room with me, so woo! We might get feisty today. Yeah. <laughs> But as I said, we're kind of we're taking on a serious subject, missing and murdered Indigenous women. And of course, the film that called attention to that was a 2017 film called Wind River. A little synopsis of the film. A veteran hunter helps an FBI agent investigate the murder of a young woman on a Wyoming Native American reservation. The film got a 7.7 on IMDb and 87% in Rotten Tomatoes. So it was a fairly well-received film at the time. The writer-director is Taylor Sheridan, and it stars Jeremy Renner as Corey, the lead role, Elizabeth Olsen, Jane Banner, the FBI agent, Graham Greene plays Ben, a tribal cop, John Bernthal plays Matt, and Kelsey Osbeal, who plays Natalie. Let's uh, let's first start off with just kind of getting your guys' gut reaction to the film. What do you guys What do you guys think of the film? Do you remember seeing it the first time? What was your reaction? I I remember watching it. Um, I believe in theaters when it first came out, and didn't watch it again since then. Since yesterday, I actually watched it um, to prepare for today's show um, my gut reaction when I first saw it in the movie theater. I think I, I pretty much cried um, the whole time watching it. Thankfully, it was a dark theater, you know, so. <laughs> right. But watching it a second time was even uh, more tough for me. I watched it with my mom, and I couldn't watch it a second time uh, in preparation for today. It's just very heavy and uh, hits home on so many different levels, you know, regardless of the the gaps within the narrative that was were shown in the movie, um, but still just the topic of missing and murdered Indigenous relatives. Um, it's just a very heavy, heavy topic and hits home on so many different levels. Yeah, I would have to agree with Ruth. Uh, the first time I watched it was in my home. Thankfully, I was alone, um, but it was very triggering Uh, The rape scenes, the beating, the fighting, abusively drunk and drugging of what we would connect with, like our relatives, you know, seeing the film, I noticed that there was a lot of stereotypes, typical stereotypes of Native Americans. Yes, yes. And um, so it it was triggering for me because I think that having that understanding, we all, you know, were advocates in our own specialized areas, but we could all connect on that level when you see them going to the reservation, you you see the dominant characters, the he- heroes you know, of the movie or the white saviors are easily identified right off the bat. And just looking at the misrepresentation of our peoples 
it, it was a it was a trigger and I don't think that it's a movie that I would I would want to watch again a lot of native we have a lot of Native Americans across the country that when something comes out and we know that it's you know there's natives in the movie everyone gets right. excited yeah and you want to go support and you want to be a part of you know whatever that narrative is you can connect with it but when I watched that movie I didn't want to watch it again I really wanted to like this movie. I really did because I love Jeremy Renner. He's Hawkeye. Like, and I'm such a Marvel nerd. <laughs> so I really wanted to like this film because I love Jeremy Renner and I like Elizabeth Olsen. But I think them and Graham Greene are maybe the only things that make this film sort of likable because the whole perspective of it really gets to me. Yeah, I, I think that they, you know, definitely skim the surface to the real issues that we face in Indian country, um, you know, like with the man camps and having a indigenous perspective lead this would, would have been valuable to address what we're facing in real time. So when I think of the man camps and um, how that could have been, how they could have dived a little bit dive deeper you know right yeah did a little bit of a deep dive on this taylor sheridan who is the writer and director of the film and found out that he was one of those guys that was like searching for themselves and so he found a sweat lodge and so just like became enamored of native people through a sweat lodge and through you know, friendships of people, of course, that when you start doing sweats and meeting Native people and building those friendships. And so so he wanted to make this film as a tribute to missing and murdered Indigenous women. And he wanted to call attention to the subject. But he had a really hard time getting away from that that white gaze. But in order, what, what I found out was in order to get attention for the movie, uh, he actually entered it into the Sundance Film Festival without telling his producers. So they, and they, of course, they didn't want it out in the public before they actually inked a deal, but he did. And because it did so well at the Sundance and at the Cannes Film Festival, it actually got an eight-minute standing ovation at the Cannes Film Festival. So not being a non-Native audience, like it's hard for us to understand, but apparently it played very well. I feel like it's a part of like, when we talk about Native representation, and how it matters, Hollywood has been an accomplice in institutionalized erasure, and it does impact how our communities see one another. It does impact how non-Indigenous communities and Indigenous communities interact with each other. It might have did well in a non-Indigenous community, but that's how they stereotype us. That's how they view us. And that is extremely harmful when it comes to K through 12 classrooms, preschool classrooms, courtroom. Um, it extends itself into even police violence, right. how people see yes. us and view us. Yeah. And um, good, well-intentioned people could still be an accomplice mm -hmm. um, and not really knowing that they are still perpetuating the stereotypes, the harmful stereotypes. Although he wanted to share out this story and gain a large audience to come and support indigenous peoples, it still would have been helpful if, you know, he thought about this, how, what, what is going to be the outcome? Uh, a lot of the time we talk about people coming in and helping us, helping indigenous communities and being good, well-intentioned people, 
they go and share out their lens. Right. And I think that is something that in Hollywood we've been used to. So let's jump into giving our feathers here on the Red Gaze. Uh, we give out Little Feathers, which are in honor of Sasheen Little Feather, who represented Marlon Brando in 1973 at the 45th Academy Awards, where he declined the Best Actor Award. He sent Sasheen Little Feather to give his declination speech. And ironically, she was not allowed to give that speech. So we give out Feathers to recognize the protests and the portrayal of Native people in Hollywood. So our first feather that we give out is our fancy dancer feather, which is our best scene. So realize, ah, tough one. But what do you guys think? What is your best scene? I don't think that there was one scene that I thought was an ideal scene. Even just the way at the end, they had him take the, the individual that led the mob. You know, he took him to the top of the mountains to... Oh, the final him, yeah. scene in the movie and where he takes him up there to get killed or, yeah, yeah even that i don't think was proper representation of indigenous peoples as well so i it's hard for me to give one i i can't find a scene where i i feel like i was mm -hmm. you know uh yeah i would agree that um it, I, and it you know for me it's like well what's the definition of a best scene in this in this case um because you know it is a very heavy heavy topic and but what what did stand out to me, or in seeing it the second time years later, uh, what, four years later, was was the men, how they did have um, the dad and the brother. Um, there was one scene where the dad got there, or when the, what was it? How did you refer to him? The hunter? Oh, a uh, veteran hunter. Veteran hunter. So when he came to, to the dad's house, and then when he went outside, and then you could hear the dad crying, that really got to me. Um, so I busted out in tears uh, just because, you know, hearing a man cry, it really gets to you. And then the other scene where her brother, you know, was handcuffed sitting outside and then he didn't oh, know right. that his sister had passed either. Yeah. And so, you know, seeing his reaction, I think that's Martin. Sensmeyer. Yeah. And so regardless of gaps in terms of proper representation of, of who we are as a people, um, those two scenes really stood out to me the second time around. That was one of my favorite scenes, too. The scene I would give my feather to is that whole scene where this FBI agent, Jane, she walks in and she's, I want to interview you. How can we let your daughter mm -hmm. go? And basically judging her and uh, judging them and she's saying, really insensitive. Yeah, yeah, and and trying to go talk to the mom. And then she sees her in there cutting and then she comes mm -hmm. out and she hears the dad crying. And then it hits her, you know, like this is, these are human beings. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that was one of the few little scenes that were redeeming scenes in this film. There's families that are losing loved ones. It's not, we're not just statistics. Yeah, yeah, it humanized it. And I think that's what um, needs to be at the forefront in all of this is that there are still families out there grieving. Right, exactly. I'm going to give my fancy dancer feather to, to one of the best scenes in the film. And it's a very small scene, and it's the only, the only part of the film that's a little bit humorous. And, you know, because it's a heavy topic, so it's hard to be humorous, but it's like we're Native people. Of course, we're going to use humor, you know, like even in the worst situations, we're going to use humor because that's who we are. It's a scene where the FBI agent come, first comes in and she's all freezing her butt off because she flew in quickly from Las Vegas and she has to take this case because she was the nearest agent. She's not dressed appropriately, so the grandma says, OK, there's some stuff you can 
you can borrow. And she takes her in and then she goes. And it's this great um, Tantu Cardinal. I just love her in all these movies. But um, she's giving her all these items and she's giving her some long johns. And she goes, uh, <laughs> thermals can make your underwear wedge up your bottom. And then that girl turns around and she's got thong underwear on. And she goes, oh, but I guess yours are already there. <laughs> so it was the... It was a one light moment to me in like an otherwise like really heavy film. So like right after that, she goes, these are my granddaughter's stuff. So then it just like, boom, you're hit again right. with that. And that, they're not a gift. Yeah. yeah. And they're not a gift. Yeah. In that sense, it's kind of like the reality of our, our we use our humor as a way to like address that grief and that trauma that happens. And then just just hearing that again, you know, reinforcing the um, the gaps within the system, you know, like they were. This is um, Wyoming, and the in the nearest agent is in Las Vegas, Nevada. You know right. what I mean? Like yeah. that kind of is yep. telling. But also, it brings me back to the scene where they they were all on that like standoff, you know, with all the different jurisdictions. Oh right, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But like outside that trailer, and he was the the guy who sexually assaulted the actor who was playing a native woman um he was hiding in the trailer that whole time you know and right. it just just brought me back to the different layers of jurisdiction issues that that are there you know even in oil country oil counties fort berthold i mean there's first of all there's a disregard for even tribal law enforcement yes um, and then yes. oil companies i mean there's been reports of oil company workers parked in big pickup trucks at the approaches of their uh, well pads with big shotguns right. playing security for their well pad. Right, you know, exactly. And so that yeah. on within trust land. But then there's the checkerboard issue and people who sell their land to oil companies. So how many different oil companies own land within the exterior boundaries of, for example, Fort Berthold Indian Reservation. And Wind yeah. River used to be a big oil tribal nation as well. So it's... It's striking. Um, so yeah, I definitely think this film scratched the surface of real issues. Right. Do you, how many people who actually saw this film really stopped and thought about that little piece of dialogue? The average person who's watching this movie d doesn't get that, you know, because they haven't actually done the research. And so they're just, hey, what was this, all this yelling about jurisdiction about? They don't even really know what that's about. And they don't realize that that's a big part of the whole problem. But that's, it's dealt with with this little like 20 seconds of dialogue and not any other place in the film. I agree. I also think that when at the very end where they had the shootout, that was eye opening because you see the oil workers with their shotguns did not care who they were pointing their shotguns at. And it just goes back to the white privilege. They felt quite comfortable raising their shotguns. They did not care. Just like what they did with the the young woman right. in the movie we're we're not seen as human and the native police officer the tribal police police officer you know just knowing that he's there on his own trying to figure out how to deal with de-escalate the situation right. and even him as a tribal our our own tribal police authority our you know our authority across the reservation had no authority. Right. You know, yes. he had information. He was intelligent. He had um, access to to certain resources that only you would know about 
working on the reservation, mm -hmm. but he was still seen as incompetent mm -hmm. and a funny guy, right. you know, yeah. so. Yeah, that brings to mind for me um, where the FBI agent says to the tribal cop, like, you wouldn't be able to, or says something along the lines, like, you wouldn't be able to solve this unless it crawled into your lap or something. You oh, know? right, like, yeah. And yeah. then, I mean, just, like, that's really telling. And then also the, the morgue, you know, the... The, what is the proper oh, name? Oh, the coroner. The coroner, yeah, yeah, where he he knew even, and then even then the tribal cop kind of turned around and tried to tell the FBI agent, you know, like, well, he's good, he's on our side. You know what I mean? So it's right. like that um, complacency or status quo that is entrenched in in these systems. Even mm -hmm. with the process for the um, at the morgue, I, I, I don't know about you all, but I felt like I went, back in my mind and thought, well, how many people have passed away? How many people should have been advocated for a little bit more? Because at the time, you trust the process, you trust the tribal police department, you trust the feds, right. you know, some of you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But like, just thinking about that, mm -hmm. I you, you take a moment and you think about all the deaths that ha have occurred. And right. you're like, well, who was there with them? Because you see, they do their job and they don't go any deeper than what they're doing right then and there. Definitely, because that's where the problem lies. I mean, with the misclassification of data, um, we saw in our family, you know, where we had a loved one pass away and, and he never smoked, um, but they said he had lung cancer and he didn't have lung cancer. You know, he had pneumonia when he passed away. Um, and so things like that, and then you want to fight it, but then if there's a family member that is like, no, they're in grieving, and so you have to respect that and not push it any further. But the misclassification of data, or even you know what Billy Joe was sharing, also really hit home with me because it brought me back. Just while you were talking, it brought me back to that scene where they were all around the body, <clears throat> and you know had tape around her and everything, and they kept showing her face, and I just was like, Ugh, like it just was like, I don't, it, it, it was tough to, to, uh, to watch every time I would just close my eyes. Even when he found her and he took, he unzipped his jacket, I thought he was going to cover her up, but he didn't, mm. <laughs> you know, he reached for something inside his jacket and then, you know, walked away and then CB'd somebody. But I think he should have covered her up, took off his jacket and covered her up. That's what I was anticipating. Mm -hmm. um, but when the agent did find, went to the body at the scene where she died. I also thought, or I thought it was good that the, within the script that the FBI agent said, you know, like ruled it homicide right away. And how many times has those cases been ruled a suicide or something other than a homicide? It rarely goes to homicide ever right. as being the first. Always thing. an accident. Let's move on to our sneak up feather. Who is the best secondary character who stole the show? I've always admired Graham Greene and I just wish that movies are huge social agents. They're powerful social agents. And just to see Graham Greene in another secondary role was very disappointing. I'm not satisfied with just having him in a movie. You know, we mm -hmm. he needs to be a lead role right. in these movies now. Yeah. I just feel like it was another token opportunity. Let's put someone that they like, you know, that the um, indigenous community likes. Um, let's put them in this role. And I feel like he's been playing that role. 
on a consistent basis in all of the films. So I would just like to see him in a more powerful lead role. Like, why couldn't Graham Greene... Have, why couldn't he have been the Corey character? The, exactly. The, yeah, exactly. That's Writing that's what I thought. Exactly. Yeah, up the mountain. <laughs> yes. Or or Martin Sensmeyer. They got him oh, over yeah. here playing like this junkie when he played this total hero character in Magnificent Seven. Why couldn't he be the hero ca- character here? Exactly. And I get it. You hear the arguments from the studios. Well, we need to have a bankable character. And like I said, I re- I really like Jeremy Renner. But why why couldn't Martin Sensmeyer have played that role? Why couldn't Graham Green have played that role. I think they would have done it justice and it would have it would have made more of a statement as a movie had they had had the courage mm-hmm. to put a native person in that lead role. I'm going to go with Graham Green. It's always Graham Green because <laughs> I think he's just a phenomenal actor. And this is a tough role for him to play because as a kind of secondary behind this white savior, the way he played it, which is just kind of this weary resignation, I think that's there's really no other way for him to have done that. Like he can't play it like he's all indignant that this is happening or that he's angry that it's happening because this is a whole corrupt, intentionally laissez-faire system of justice and the way he plays it oh look who they sent us that's how it is here he plays that i think in such a way that it gives it the humanity and it's not that he doesn't care it's just he's just tired because he's tried to fight this system before and he just knows he's not going to get anywhere so i have to give mine to graham green for me it was hard to decipher but yeah you know just hearing you talk about like the it brought me back to different just different scenes where he was silent you know and and then it also brought me when the first time i watched it i remember thinking like this is very stereotypical of portraying a native you know quiet and kind of what is it mystical you know stoic yeah stoic stoic and so but i've been in so many different spaces where spending time with different elders and them sharing you know like those that speak the most know the least so i've always carried that with me and, and had different instances where you get misjudged if you're not speaking all the time. So I kind of appreciated that about his character in this movie. All right, well, we probably have a name moment then, right? What's your name moment? Mine goes back to that the scene where the FBI agent was questioning the, the dad, her first contact with them. I thought that was pretty disrespectful. Um, and then later another scene where she goes into the bathroom and it was kind of like trying to make it all about her and, Um, So that's where I was like, kind of felt icky. I would have to say towards the end when they would visit the dad and he was outside sitting in the grass and he had his face painted. I thought that that was very insensitive to what what was going on. Right, especially the way he, they had his face painted. Like, what was he going to some ball game or something? Yeah, like, it was very Hollywood. But yeah. no disrespect to like if tribes yeah. actually do that, but yeah. I haven't ever heard of that. If or they could have given a little more information around that, especially with the tribes. The people watching it aren't familiar with the tribes, so it would have been nice to have some background. But there really wasn't a lot of dialogue in regards to what the current situation is. It was not a Native American lens. I think one of my main name moments was that whole um, take the pain speech. Corey, the main uh, character, Jeremy Renner, goes and talks to Gil Birmingham, who plays the dad. 
he's really grieving and he's going through this hard time and this Jerry Mirror comes and he's I went to this grief counseling and they tell you you know you got to take the pain you got to go through the pain so you can you know get healing don't you go past that you know you you take the pain and I was like well that's a real like white gaze moment to me because it's like here's this white guy trying to tell a native person how to take pain <laughs> how to take trauma yeah. you know how to survive trauma We've evolved into beautiful communities. We thrive, we live. Um, we're teachers, we're lawyers, we're doctors. Um, and we're just not what the film portrayed. And I know that there's a common message that they wanted to share out with the world, but I still feel like when we talk about representation, this individual had an opportunity to create this film. And I, I'm sure he did his research. I'm sure they all did the research. I just wanted to reiterate that again because it is a social agent and it does impact our communities. It does impact how people view us. It impacts how people work with us. It impacts how people ed work in education systems as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that's extremely important. I did a little research on the film and I, I usually kind of take a look at some of the reviews that are out there to see what people are saying. And I found this quote that I thought was really interesting. What it said is, portraying Native Americans as so uniformly sad provides an excuse for white peoples and the character of Corey Lambert in specific to impose their paternalistic authority. Does a positive message redeem poor narrative? Does giving a good cause free you from obligations to the culture you are telling stories about? The implicit answer to both these questions is no. Narrative is often equal to or essential to constructing message, and Sheridan's presentation of this good cause is a shallow one. And I think that's kind of what we've been saying all along here is that if he really wanted to call attention to this topic, why didn't he have a character in the movie of a Native woman activist giving statistics or providing information or explaining, you know, why the problems are the way they are. It, it seemed like instead he was sort of more interested in making this warrior, white savior hero and one with the land and all of this kind of stuff. It's that still, it's that Dances with Wolves story. He he just, he just picked up Kevin Costner's character and put him in a modern day situation. And I think that's what the, the problem is with these films is that they always tend to go back to that. It's even though we're just props. Well, I think just to add what you're just speaking to, I think it raises the question, what are these producers and companies doing to give back to the communities directly impacted yes. um, by this, this yeah. relevant ongoing issue? There's a lot there to unpack. And it's I, I see problems with that. It's not to... Um, say we want other people to suffer with further criticism that we might have experienced being under a microscope and being um, the on the receiving end of criticism for speaking out on issues that people don't want to speak out on mm -hmm. and so but we give we often give non-natives a pass right. more easily than we do our own right exactly all right, well, let's come to the scene 86, the scene that is the worst scene that you would probably just cut on out of there and not even have. The sexual assault scene for right. me. Right. Um, oh, my the God. The total lack of disregard for her. Um, it was tough seeing that, you know, they tried to close the 
makeshift wall in that trailer. Um, and then those the guys, his buddies, came back, came home or whatever, and just ripped it back open and, you know, had no, dis had no regard for them. And I think that speaks to some of what is, what occurs within oil counties and man camps and, you know, people, um, I think the, the guy, her boyfriend was a, was in the Navy formerly. And so to me, it, it told me, you know, that like not, not much stability kind of like traveling here to here and there. And how many times do, um, does that, how similar of a situation that is for say people who live in rural communities that often don't get newcomers or visitors and so it it provides this false hope to people who live in communities um like oh this guy's really interested in me or you know mm -hmm. he's a navy a mm -hmm. former sailor and you know but they could just be there to make money and mm -hmm. then in the process um he didn't he tried to stand up for her but it wasn't enough and i think it just made my stomach sick to mm -hmm. watch that scene because it brought so much to mind for me of, of things that we have experienced and witnessed. Um, you know, I can't say I, I live on the res currently, but, you know, I did spend four consecutive summers there during that second oil boom where we had a huge population growth, uh, 2011 through 2014. Back home in Mandaree, which is referred to the heart of the, the Bakken oil formation. That, and then also as a mom, um, thinking back to another part that I didn't get to mention where the veteran hunter was talking to the dad whose daughter was was dead um, about how it's tough like you know that I think too we haven't talked about you know the commonality that they yes they were grieving in different ways but um, they were almost like a support system for each other um, and how he was trying to comfort the native dad but also saying like you know you can't you can barely, you can't even blink your eye, you know, and that just was like, uh, because, you know, I have a daughter in college right now, and it's, it's, it's tough, you know, doing what little work I have done to help address the MMIP issue. Um, as a mom, it's scary. It's really scary. And mm -hmm. I don't want my daughter to grow up and live in fear. And I don't want to be like this huge worry wart, but it's the reality and, you know, having these conversations early on with my daughter, you know, like in 2017, when Savannah went missing and was murdered for her baby in Fargo. Um, we live in Fargo and my daughter went to homecoming dance that fall and shared that a few of them went down to the football field, which is located right next to the Red River. And I got after her and said, you know, you can't do that. Your friends might be able to, but you can't, you know, and then mm -hmm. explained why, but it's not to, have her live in fear, but I want them to be aware of their surroundings always. But um, so yeah, being a parent and having, uh, you know, your children now be young adults and at any age, you know, it's susceptible to these issues. But um, for me, it's a real um, issue that I'm facing right now and like trying how, you know, trusting that my daughter's gonna be safe when she's not home with me is <laughs> right. tough. I, I would have to agree with Ruth would be the, um, the sexual assault scene mm -hmm. that was um, that was hard to watch. I remember in the theater watching it and just being you like I don't want to be here. Mm -hmm. 
and then in rewatching it to to review i just fast forwarded through the thing because yeah. <laughs> i because yeah because you don't want to watch that you know what i mean yeah i remember the first time i watched it leaving the movie theater mad i was mad i remember feeling angry mm-hmm. cried through the whole thing but then left angry <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My scene 86, of course, of course, I knew, I mean, I kind of figured that would be the main 86 scene. So I chose a different 86 scene, which is the cutting scene where the FBI agent comes, walks in on the mom and she's cutting um, after the death of her daughter. And this is the third time, to my knowledge, that they've shown cutting in a in a movie the first one is in a movie called A Man Called Horse, where they showed this lady, elderly lady cutting her finger off. And then Dances with Wolves, where Stands with the Fist was, you know, out on the prairie, just very prettily cutting herself or whatever. <laughs> but all these cutting scenes that they do in movies, they never do it justice. They never, they just seem to throw it in there as oh look this is something really exotic and weird that native people do and they don't put it in context they don't make it understandable they just you know here's these savage people you know cutting themselves up and that just bothers me because that because there's so much more to it you know what i mean there's there's so much more to it as a as a practice and it never ever ever gets addressed in any way it's just sort of thrown in there as some sort of another indicator of the savagery of native americans so that that would been my scene all right what about uh our cousin feather what native actor or actress would you have liked to seen in this film I don't think she's an actress yet, but I would say like Quana, uh, chasing his horse. No. Oh right, the model. The model yeah. yeah. Think, or um, yeah, or the other lady from Rutherford Falls, or, or any of the the actors in the Res Dogs too, you know. But or just you know people that we see in a everyday. native a native <laughs> yeah. an actor. a native actor yeah. <laughs> a native activist would be yeah, nice yeah any one of us could have stood there and been stoic yeah. <laughs> just kidding <laughs> right that's that's what i put too was like just give me any native character in the lead role of this you know in any of the lead roles cuz cuz as it was it was just like we were just props all right what about the smudge bomb this is our new category on the red gaze where we uh Give props to Michael J. Marin, who produced the movie called The Smudging and used the smudge bombs to get rid of the evil spirits. So what what uh, scene would you smudge bomb? I think that one of the scenes where the police officers and the agent showed up at the trailer house looking for the brother, I, I really thought that that was a huge... They really did it up with that scene with the gun violence. And I, I felt like that was inaccurate you know just going in and blazing it reminded me of like a they're trying to recreate a western scene or something where they had everyone go in and just start shooting and I wouldn't say it needed a smudge bomb but (laughs) it's just one scene that stood out to me where um I was like that's just Hollywood right you know they really did that scene up and that stood out to me. And then they just showed him dying too. You know what I mean? Like they just showed his face. Like I just uh, sucker punch to the gut. It was actually 
that scene, one of the things was actually in running in my in the running for my name moment was when they showed that trailer too that they were in, and this really fancy gra- graffiti across the wall said, "We will. We have always killed cowboys on the wall in the trailer." Oh, okay. Is that what it said? Yeah. I reminded yeah. a couple times. Or whatever we have we we have always killed cowboys, and I was like, you know, yeah, that would really be the graffiti. Hollywood. That's yeah. yeah. So it was really a, a a Hollywood touch that I didn't like either. So. I don't really have a specific scene. I would just say the whole thing. <laughs> just kidding. It did raise awareness, and I don't know what my score would be on this movie if I were to give it a score, but it did raise awareness, and it, it did it did get the foot in the door, you know, to provide more dialogue and panel discussions across the country on this very important topic. But, um, but yeah, I would say every scene might have needed a smudging. So our big question is, who is the white savior? In some movies, there's like a question about who the white savior is. But I think in this one, there's no question. Who would you say the white savior is? It depends on which side or which perspective. I feel like there could have been two perspectives where racists would have really enjoyed the um, the security at the man camp. Like, I, it goes... You know, white savior. We think on our end, it's Jeremy Renner, the 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 hunter, and then you have the white woman, you know, the agent. That's like, oh, I'm here to help. After everything, she's like, I care. She she takes over, where it's like she's going to help the community. She's going to share out all of this. You know what's currently happening. It it kind of made me sick to think like the white ladies coming in and oh my gosh now we're all going to change our perspectives because the white woman is like she cares right and that and then you think about like if people are really watching this closely i just feel like they even created that dialogue for the the security the oil security um they gave them like this power you know like right. this unspoken power this privilege where they don't care who's coming around, they don't care whose land they're on. It just reiterates the stereotype, the recycled stereotype. I I, I would say it was a mix between, between Jeremy and the, the woman, but I feel like everyone could relate to the woman because it's like, oh my gosh, she's going through so much. <laughs> you know, like right? She's going through so much. She showed up to the reservation and she's just like, cold, someone get her some winter gear. And everyone went to find her winter gear. Reading the reviews, of course, some of the critics are definitely come from a people of color standpoint. And one of the big criticisms was the fact that, of course, it was a woman FBI agent. It had to be a woman. You know, it had to be a woman FBI agent to represent that. But the reason why the FBI agent that came in had to be a woman because was because it reinforces even further that white male gaze. There's this hierarchy in the film of, oh, the, the biggest savior is white men, of course. And then it's white women are the next level of savior. And then Indian males because of the Indian cop. And then... Indian women are way at the bottom. So this film did a lot of damage in the sense that it it reinforced that hierarchy. So I'm glad you brought that up. But I hadn't even thought about that. Like it even reinforced that hierarchy of these rogue white males, these swaggering white males with their guns on their hips and their I don't give a you know hoot, 
Eh, I was going to use a stronger word, but I don't care who you are, whose jurisdiction this is. I, you know, I'm here to extract something and I have a right to be here. And so even the idolizing of that sort of attitude was present in this film. I think that's a really good point. You know, back in the day, Westerns were very extremely popular back in the day. And now this is like we're taking a little piece of a this is like a modern day Western clip. And then to to that end, though, I think that's how you get people's attention. You know, it spoke to maybe it, it in a way hopefully speaks to the people who are committing these crimes, who have who contribute to human trafficking and to MMIP. And, you know, I think a lot of times, unfortunately, the messenger matters, you know, And so hopefully this did reach the people it needed to reach by speaking their language. Some of the critics who also said the same things, you know, like there's some really problematic things about the gaze in this film and the perspective that it comes from. But ultimately, we're going to forgive it because it does at least get the attention out there to the mainstream audience. And, And that's unfortunate. They have to play those tropes in order to make it palatable for other audiences. Yeah, I'm just trying to look at it through a comprehensive lens because, I mean, even though it, we know as Native Indigenous people in our heart the injustices that this film portrayed of us. Yeah, so I mean, I think that we do have to approach this in a comprehensive lens and try to find avenues, every different angle to attack this issue. Um, even, you know, women who are, so to speak, infiltrating Uh, For example, the Sturgis motorcycle rally, you know, um, they they received um, pushback, you know, of course, for number one, it's during a pandemic, and that's a hot spot. But they are in that space raising awareness. And so that's what we need. We need people, we need allies, accomplices. But yes, things do need to be be done in a respectful manner. But at at the same time, how do we prevent further lives from being lost? So in the final scenes of the movie, there's this quote that comes up on the screen and it says, while missing person statistics are compiled for every other demographic, none exists for Native American women and no one knows how many are missing. And that was a a really powerful way to end the movie and I'm glad you did that. Uh, Ruth, you sponsored legislation to actually establish a database to start keeping statistics about missing and murdered Indigenous people um, here in North Dakota. So do you want to talk a little bit about that, how that all came about? Sure. What started at a local level, young Indigenous mom went missing eight months along in her pregnancy, and we jumped right in and helped with the search. And unfortunately, didn't get the results that we had hoped and prayed for. And so we kept taking action. We felt that we could not just not do anything. So after a lot of community conversations, even community conversations that happened right outside a sweat lodge in Fargo, um, we formed a local task force. And we didn't ask for anybody's permission or, or seek legislation to form a task force. It was just something we did locally. And then... Um, I just so happened to, to win my legislative race that November, and so at our scheduled monthly meeting that November, um, I had a legislator show up and come with me to that meeting. Right before the meeting was going to start, uh, um, like whispers over and says, what do you think about asking the task force to give us their wish list for the legislative session? And I said, yeah, that would be great. Like it was almost like, 
permission in a way or green light because mm-hmm. like you know I I'm I'm a native woman um, grew up in Mandaree yeah I went to, away to boarding school my entire family still lives in Mandaree but I represent uh, Fargo you know which is not on the res um, we have a growing urban native population um, so still at that time to have you know a long time legislator suggest that idea was like really heartwarming but in a sense telling too of the political landscape you know and so um, sessions started that January so they sent me their list it was six bills um, and all of those pieces passed into law and and so there yeah I mean it's a different like there's um, you know there was a resolution urging Congress to pass Savannah's Act comprehensive study looking at the intersection between MMIP and human trafficking cases and and that passed also. The other four, uh, two focused on human trafficking prevention and awareness, one for schools, one for hotels, and then data collection and uh, law enforcement training. Because this film was shown in theaters, you know, so it did reach the mainstream audience. But yeah, definitely lots of work to do. But this is why we do the red gaze is to call these things out and to say, we can't just say, oh, yeah, that was a great film because it wasn't. You know, it was a great film in the sense that it brought out the issue, but it was not a great film because it did all these other things um, negatively. And so by just having a discussion about that and calling attention to it, I think is, you know, that may also be helpful. Mm -hmm. Because I think if we can't wait for the perfect, I don't know if there is going to ever, if there is ever going to be like the perfect movie, you know. Right. Um, Yeah. So, but I think it, it did definitely spark conversations that weren't happening before on this issue and I just want to thank you ladies for joining us today because as on the ground you know community organizers I appreciate everything that you guys do and calling attention to those issues and so just being on this program and calling out the things that are problematic in our representation on film is really important too because like you said it we can either let those reinforced stereotypes lie or we can talk about them and we can talk about why they're wrong and we can help educate people. And that's kind of what we're all about with the Red Gaze. So thank you guys so much for joining us today. Uh, for those of you listeners, shout out to Ruth Buffalo and Billy Joe B. Healer on the ground doing the work, ladies. I'm honored to share the space with you. So thank you for joining us with the Red Gaze. Have a good rest of the day, listeners. Keep listening to The Red Gaze. Our podcast is on iTunes and Spotify. So if you haven't heard us yet, keep on listening. See you. Bye. Don't shout Flutes and feathers, eagles cry. No more saviors, no more lies. Waiting for better days. We'll be here with our red gaze. Hey, oh, hey, yeah, hey, oh. Here, here.